Ephesians 5. This morning we're going to be looking at God's instructions to us as a, as a people, as a church, about walking it out in our marriages. And if you weren't here last week, we talked about walking the walk. You've got to walk the walk. If you're going to talk the talk, you have to walk the walk. And what is the walk? The walk is what a spirit-filled person does. So the command is be filled with the spirit. And then there are these four participles we talked about last week or things that a spirit-filled person does. And so a spirit-filled person does, what they do is they speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. They have biblical fellowship. A spirit-filled person praises God, sings praises to God, which we just finished doing. And a, a spirit-filled person um, submits to one another. They're grateful to God, number three. And then number four, they submit to one another. And I'm actually going to pick up on that verse, verse 21. And then what we're going to see the next three weeks, this week, next week, and the following week, is how a spirit-filled person lives their lives in the ordered domestic relationships that God has given us to walk in. How a spirit-filled person lives their life in the ordered domestic relationships that God has ordained for us. He's going to start with marriage this week. He's going to move to parenting, children and parents next week. And the third week, he's going to move to the workplace. So a spirit-filled person lives the following ways. That's what this message is about. And and, and chapter 21, is so, verse 21 of chapter 5 is so important because one of the key elements of being a spirit-filled person is that they submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that's verse 21. So let's start there. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. Lord, I pray that you would anoint the preaching of your word, anoint the hearing of your word. Lord, build your church that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Your gospel would move forth. And spirit-filled people who are informed by the unity and the union between Christ and his bride, the church, And it would cause our marriages to shine brightly in this dark world. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, verse 21 is a hinge verse. Like I said, it's that final participle, that I-N-G word, that describes what a person filled with the Spirit looks like, what he does, 
what she does. And what they do is they submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the idea of submitting in these divinely ordered relationships is introduced in 521. And as I said, it will be expanded now in 522 through 69. Now note, this submission is ultimately to Christ. For we are to submit out of reverence for Christ. Our submission as those filled with and controlled by the Spirit is played out in our daily relationships as we first submit to Christ. We are called to submit to Christ as his wife. All right, men, I know this is hard for us. Before, listen, married men, before you are a husband, you're a wife. It's true. We are part of the church, and the church is called the bride of Christ. It is a metaphor used in the Bible. If you look at the last book of the Bible, one of the last chapters of that book, there is going to be a wedding feast. And guys, we come in as the bride of Christ. He beautifies us. So let me just say that to every man here. You are a husband. If you're married, you are a husband. But first, you're a wife. You're you're Christ's wife. Doesn't that inform us? Doesn't that help us? That's why verse 21 is so important. By the way, next week, fathers, before you are a father, you're a child. A child of God. And the following week, it says in the Bible, masters, before you are a master, you're the servant of the master. Do you see how 521 informs all these domestic relationships? We are primarily defined by who we are in Christ. We are to be humble, meek, kind, self-giving. We are to have self-sacrificial love, not self-indulgent lust. Remember Bentley's message at the beginning of chapter 5? And that's to play out in all of our domestic relationships. Self-sacrificial love, not self-indulgent lust. This is the key to understand the specific aspects of submission in the particular domestic, domestic roles to which God has called us. Our calling in Christ is dominant. The specific roles to which we have been assigned are always subservient to our calling in Christ, to be Christ-like. So let me illustrate. Let me illustrate using a symphony orchestra. Now, my daughter, Melinda, studied music, and one of her classmates was Jonathan Parker. And Mindy on the piano, Jonathan on the flute. They are gifted musicians. And they introduced me into a world I had never known. I I remember going and attending their performances and marveling at what I had missed growing up. A symphony orchestra expertly playing a stirring piece of well-composed music is inspiring. It's uplifting. It's glorious. Almost as glorious as the heat wind last night. For many of you, you'd say, no, way more glorious, Al. And you know, it is. But for me, sadly, I'm impoverished culturally, so the heat wind was pretty glorious for me. Back to the music. But, But each musician plays his or her instrument according to the notes and timing of the score under the direction of the conductor so they each have a common calling reflected in the score the specific score in front of them for their instrument and yet they each have different parts to play in that score and when they play their part to perfection in union with one another they make beautiful music so so beethoven you know writes this symphony 
And it's a big symphony. It's glorious. And then within that symphony, the flute has its part, the piano its part, the violin, and there's several chairs in the violin. Every instrument has a different part. And everybody has, they're singing or playing off the same sheet of music, but they have a particular role in that sheet of music. And they have a conductor who's conducting them. And when they play their part in per- to perfection and union with one another, they make beautiful music. But if one, one instrument decides to bust out on an unplanned solo to highlight their ability, it doesn't sound so good. Or if one is not paying attention and fails to hit the proper note at the proper time, disaster. Or if one just fails to follow the, con- the conductor's instructions, or just refuses to play his or her own part, for whatever reason, I'm not going to play that. I should be first chair. I can't, I can't believe I'm in second chair. I'm not playing it. The music is diminished. And so you and I, dear friends, have a common calling, a common score, a symphony composed by and conducted by God himself. And yet this common symphony does not mute or cancel the particular roles, instruments, notes that we are to play. Our life is to shine. Our our life is to play a particular note in a particular way that's distinct from lives around us and yet coordinated by a conductor God and a symphony that he wrote his word. We're like this orchestra assembled to play a symphony to the praise and glory of God's grace. And the common calling defines how we play, the rhythms, the keys, the melodies. All the performers, all the instruments playing off this common score, sheet of music, symphony, conducted by the grand conductor. See, that's what we're getting into here. We're getting into the big score. We've been looking at the big score in the first three chapters of Ephesians. It's called the gospel. And if you are here and do not know Christ, then you need to know this. The gospel is clear. The gospel is Jesus Christ, his perfect life lived for you. His sacrificial death, he died on the cross for your sins, the punishment that you deserve. And his resurrection from the dead, that means we're forgiven. His ascension into heaven means that the Father has received the Son. And then the Father and the Son have poured out the Spirit And the reason the gospel is so important to you is because apart from Christ, you deserve God's wrath and it is on you. You are a child of wrath. And this is the story of the Bible. It is the gospel from beginning to end, the gospel. It's the common score. We've been studying that. But within that symphony, we each have specific scores to play. We each have specific notes to play. And today we look at one of those specific notes, actually two of them, those specific instruments. And one is of a wife and one is of a husband. Husbands and wives. This is the context for these radical, radical commandments we get. See, we we all play our part in submission to the one, Jesus Christ, who wrote the music and conducts the symphony. And wives, your role is to submit to your husband's. And husbands, your role is to love your wives. Now, Christ loved the church. We are his church. He's the conductor. God the Father wrote the symphony, sent the Son. The Son died for us, rose from the dead. Father and Son, send the Spirit to apply this work. This is what we are to submit to. All of us. Verse 21. And then specifically in marriage. 
verses 22 to 33. Did you know that Ephesians 5, 22 to 33 is the largest section of Scripture that deals with marriage? It's the largest section in all of Scripture that deals with marriage. This is the place you want to go when you talk about marriage. And folks, there is no institution that has been more attacked, more under insidious attack than marriage today. From our current society's efforts to redefine marriage, sadly, to the very sad statistic that over 50% of marriages end in divorce. Why? Because the attack is on Christ himself and upon the image of Christ and the church, on God's plan of redemption revealed in the marriage relationship. What we're going to see in this text is not that we move from our marriage to Christ and the church. No, no, no. Christ and the church is the typology that informs marriage so that what's happening is Christ is being attacked indirectly through marriage because of the link there, the typology. Christ and the church is played out on earth in husband and wife. So it's an attack. And you've got to understand that moving into marriage. You've got to be ready to fight the spiritual warfare and pray and understand and be informed and fight the battle along the lines that God has called us to. See, God God has given us specific paths to walk in and godless men and women want to change those paths. Put us on a path of destruction. They want to redefine marriage foolishly. They want to reject God's creation order. They want to take Genesis 1, 27 and 28 and they want to redefine it. They want to redefine who man is, man's essence. And as I spoke to Cal Beisner a couple of weeks ago in Genesis 1, 28, they want to redefine man's mission. Man's essence, man and woman brought together in marriage. Man and woman made in the image of God, brought together in marriage, and man's mission to to be fruitful and multiply and exercise that dominion under God's authority over the earth. We talked about a couple of weeks ago, Darwinian evolution attack, verse 27, who's the essence of man, and we see it today in redefining marriage in just insidious terms, culture-destroying terms. And then the environmentalist movement, which Cal has championed, attacks Genesis 1.28, the mission of man. And see, here we have, we have creation mandate here. Genesis 5, 22 to 33 has, is not culture, brothers and sisters. This is not some outdated patriarchal Middle Eastern chauvinistic cultural thought from Paul, a Jewish male in the first century. That is baloney. It is untrue. It is it is. It is intellectually dishonest. Here we have creation mandate before culture began. This is how God said do it. Now sadly, right after he said do it this way, we rebelled. We rebelled. We rebelled. So in the face of this attack... God calls us to walk in reverence to Christ in our marriages, and that's the main point. Reverence Christ in your marriages. God calls wives to reverence Christ by submitting to their husbands as to the Lord. God calls husbands to reverence Christ by loving their wives as Christ loved the church and laid his life down for us. Guys, God calls us to reverence Christ to grow up from being little boys who play their games and men who fight real wars and and have real love instead of playing video game wars and looking at pornography and fake love. 
He says, man up. Image me. In a culture where men have been wimpified. And they live their lives in virtual nothingness. And he's saying, rise up. Be who I called you and made you to be. Trust me. And I'm redeeming you for this. Now, these are hard commands. Ladies, did you all flinch when I said you're called to submit to your husband? If you didn't, you're not listening to me. (laughs) Just look at your husband. You will flinch when I say that. And I speak that for my wife and me. We are little boys seeking to grow up. At times, we are self-indulgent men who are more interested in lusting than loving. We are self-absorbed. But we're redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And he's making these marred images of God into beautiful images of God that one day will look like Jesus Christ. And thank you for the faith, ladies, for hanging in there. But it's hard. Some wives... They they don't think they should submit. It just sounds oppressive. It's patriarchal. These are the women that define marriage as legalized rape and slavery and and just rebel against it. Now, that's one end of the spectrum, okay? Other wives functionally feel that they will only submit to their husbands if their husbands love them properly. So they redefine and downgrade God's command of submission to conditional submission. And some wives ask, some wives ask what if my husband is not leading me? Or, or is leading me poorly? Do I still submit? They may find themselves rationalizing their lack of submission with statements that begin with, if you had done this, then I would have done that. And some wives, and I would say single women as well, sitting here observing marriage, maybe you observed your parents' marriage, maybe you observed some marriages here in this, in this church, Sadly, we're sorry if we've not been good examples to you. Daughters may be observing mom and dad, and and they say, you know what? I fear submitting to a husband. I fear it. I fear it. And there are some men who don't think they should lay down their lives for their wives, but rather they, they want to dominate their wives. They want to make their wives a personal slave. Many men don't... They fear leading their wives. They lack the spiritual courage it takes to lead as servants. And they crave their wives' approvals. They're spiritual wimps. So everybody's here going, oh man. Now why is this so? Why is this passage so hard to hear? Well, let me tell you why. Because of the fall. Because in Genesis chapter 3, we have the fall. Genesis chapter 2 gives us the creation mandate about how men and women should relate together, husband and wives, men and women. And, but then Genesis chapter 3 helps us understand why all these things I just described, describe so many of us here this morning. Why it's so hard in marriage sometimes. Why people just don't even want to get married anymore. Why divorce rates are over 50%. Why there's upwards of 80% illegitimacy in some of minority communities. Why the family is just getting blown apart. Why? Because of Genesis 3. You see, in Genesis 3, when man and woman said, I'm not going to go your way, God, God rightly judged them because he had told them, if you don't obey me, if you eat of this fruit that I say not to eat, you will, be, you will die. And when they did it, he said, now that you've eaten of it, 
There is a curse that comes upon you. And, and here's the curse. Women. And, and this, this helps. This should help you, ladies. And, and husbands, this should help you not to take it personally. When your wife digs in her heels and refuses to submit to you. When it just gets downright nasty. When she says, I will die before I submit to you. And she says, if you were the last person on this earth, I am not going to. If you're offering me food and I'm dying of hunger, I'm not going to take it. When those moments come, and please don't look at me religiously as if they don't in your marriage. Because they've come in my marriage. And I'm not talking like 20 years ago either. I want you to look at this. Genesis 3.16. Look at this for a second. Genesis 3.16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, that phrase, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. That word desire is not a sexual desire. This is not even a desire like, I I want to follow him. No, that's not it. It's not a desire to be dominated at all. No, this desire that the woman has for man is a desire uh, for evil to oppose her husband. To oppose her husband. it's, It's a desire to overcome her husband. If you look at Genesis 4, 7, when, when, when God is talking to Cain, He says, sin's desire is for you, Cain. It's crouching. What he means is, sin's desire is against you. It's it's coming after you. It's opposing you. At the fall, what happened is a beautifully harmonious relationship that God set up for man to lead, woman to follow, and together to image God and have harmony and beauty and make babies and populate the world and live happily ever after got messed up in the fall and women said, not only no, But no. And they said it with a bad attitude. So ladies and men. Men, can we dispense with getting all hurt in your little feelings when your wife does that? Can we just man up a little bit? Can we just say, okay, listen. This is how the fall affected my wife. I'm going to care for her. My mom is lying in a hospital bed with a breathing tube down her throat, swollen, hurting. And instead of looking at her and saying, get up, I have compassion on her because she had an accident and her body is failing her. And so I want to help her. Well, men, imagine your wife in an accident. It happening at the beginning of time. And in this accident, which wasn't an accident, It affected her. So there's something in her genes to say, no! And every day they got to fight it. Now, how did it affect the men? Well, it affected us men in in a different way. It affected us men in in wanting to make us Neanderthals. That's what that second part of that verse is there. Of wanting to dominate a woman. Now, this is sad, but you, you know... Rape occurs when a man violates a woman. There's a reason for that. The men are the aggressors. Ladies, it's going to be a little harder for you because I know this is difficult, but when your husband is acting like a jerk, 
when he has no desire to serve you, when he's just consumed with his, himself, he's consumed in self-indulgent lust, whether that takes a sexual look or sometimes that just takes a selfish look. I'm watching ESPN all night long. I'm not going to serve you, honey. Oh, is it date night? I'll put five seconds of thought into it. Oh, can we get tickets to the Heat game? I will spend three months planning that one. When that happens, ladies, just realize, just as you're tempted the way you're tempted, this is how he's tempted. Or, and it's funny, it's like, a, it's like a bipolar person. It's either that temptation, total domination, come here, woman, grabbing you by the hair, metaphorically speaking, serve me, get me my coat, get me my food. I'm here, I'm just going to sit here and you serve me the whole day long. Like little boys expect mommy to pick up after them. It's the other side, too. It's just total, total laziness. Total self-absorbed laziness. So ladies, when that happens, just realize this is the result of the fall. But both of you, men and women, I want you to realize something as we move into this scripture that actually tells you ladies to do the very thing that you don't want to do because of the fall and tells you men to do the very thing you don't want to do because of the fall. Jesus came to redeem us from the fall. And if that redemption isn't played out on our marriages, we're standing there all talking, no trousers. If you weren't here last week, I can explain that for you. It's nothing to do with sexual things. Jesus came to redeem us back from the curse. And yes, big picture, the curse is God's wrath. But then that curse is played out. Each instrument gets tuned up. Each instrument starts being able to be played correctly. And we understand the score. And he brings the score into focus. Oh, that's the note I'm supposed to play. The purpose of God in history and in the history of redemption is to overcome the curse of the fall. And there's no place, no better place to overcome it than in marriage. And everything is at stake. Everything's at stake. Everything's at stake. For that reason, women, reverence Christ by submitting to your husbands in the Lord. And that's the first point. Reverence Christ by submitting to your husbands in the Lord. This is creation order, ladies. This is not culture. This is not patriarchal culture. This is creation order. And notice the rationale that God gives you, ladies, for submitting to your husbands. Look at verse 22. Verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself the Savior. So the rationale that God gives you for submitting to your husband, ladies, as he's the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. The Greek word there is kephale. Kephale. It's an important word. That's a very important word today. And, and the idea there is, is one who would have authority over. Christ is the head of the church. He has authority over the church. And so God has placed the husband in authority over his wife. Ladies, not every wife is to submit to every husband her husband. And certainly not every woman is to submit to every man. That's wrong. That's not what scripture teaches. But you, wife, submit to your husband, for he is your head. He's in authority over you by God. 
See, don't you understand it was the man who was made first? Genesis 2. And it was out of the man's side, out of his rib, that woman was made. So woman came out of man. This whole idea of, of, of headship. It's fascinating and not, no time to go into it in detail. But even as Christ birthed and really gives life to the church, metaphorically speaking, Adam gave life to the woman. Now we know that God did it, but he took part of Adam. It's God that did that. Not some patriarchal person in the first century. Not some chauvinistic man in the 21st century. Ladies, it's God that made this creation order. Now, you can doubt this. You can chuckle in your heart, as Darwinian evolution would tempt you to, that Genesis 1 and 2 are not true, that that we evolved, that we were not created. Well, you can do that, and that's the long war right now. But I tell you, this is true. This is true. And it has implications. It has implications. Here's an implication. Here's an implication. Do you remember the theme of Ephesians? Corey preached it. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. This isn't just the theme of Ephesians. This is the theme. This is God's purpose. (laughs) Ephesians 1, 9 and 10 says this. Making known to us the mystery of his will. Mystery of his will. We're going to see that word mystery in a moment. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. That word there in the Greek is a derivative of kephale. It's one of these long participial deliverance. Kephale is in that unite part. So what he's saying in Ephesians 1.10 is, God's going to bring everything under the headship of Christ. So ladies, part of God bringing everything under the headship of Christ is him bringing you under the headship of your husband. What's at stake here is God's plan. That's the point. Wives, part of God bringing everything under the headship of Christ is God bringing you under the headship of your husband. I know what you're thinking. Are you saying he's better than me? No. No. No, I'm not. And Scripture isn't either. Because Scripture says that Jesus Christ submitted, Christ, God the Son, submitted to God the Father. And if you say that God the Son is inferior to God the Father, then you do not believe in the Trinity. That is a crucial doctrine of the Bible, not to mention the church. So you cannot say that submitting to someone means that you are less than they are in your being. No, 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 no. God the Son and God the Father are equal in their being. It's a fancy word for that. They're ontologically equal. Their beings are equal. But the Father, the Father, the Son submits to the Father. Women, you have a unique opportunity to to, to shine forth and image this unbelievable, amazing aspect of God, of the Godhead of the Trinity, in, in Christ submitting to the Father, the Son submitting to the Father. You get to do that in a unique way in the marriage relationship. So I have some application questions for you, ladies. These application questions will be posted online. So when Chris posts the message online, he'll he'll post these notes and they'll be posted. So you can just read them there and you'll get them um, 
from a download. Here we go. These come from David Pallison's article entitled The Fear of Christ is the Beginning of Wisdom, which is from the Journal of Biblical Counseling. And here they are. Ladies, how are you respectful towards your husbands? How will you as a wife learn to actively pursue honoring your husband? Rather than, notice the put off, put on, rather than nagging him, ignoring him, resentfully going along with him, or despising him. So you get this whole array of this has this whole array right there. Some of you ladies are just attack mode. You despise him. It is, it is a daily barrage of despising missiles. that He can do nothing right, ever. Everything gets critiqued or everything gets nagged on. But some of you ladies are passive aggressive. You just, in your heart, you resentfully go along with him. And you know where it shows up? And your lack of passion in the bedroom. Your lack of really wanting to give yourself to him. You've got to understand, this is far more than about your intimacy. It's about the glory of God displayed in marriage. So, part of God bringing everything under the headship of Christ is God bringing you, dear wife, under the headship of your husband. Will you be brought? Will you be brought or will you be shrewish? Making excuses. And boy, do we ever give you as husbands lots of excuses to make. And men, God, part of bringing everything under the headship of Christ is you loving your wife, reverencing Christ by loving your wives as Christ loved the church. And that's point two of the, of the outline. Husbands, reverence Christ by loving your wives as Christ loved the church. I just realized that clock's broken again. Can I, can I get your watch? Thanks. Husbands, reverence Christ by loving your wives as Christ loved the church. So here, men, is an appeal for us to love our wives as Christ loved us, as he gave himself for us. Let's look at the text. 5.25 Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that, he might, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So men, what we have here, what we have here is the great commandment. This is really what we have here. We have the great commandment. And what is that great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so what God is saying here is, the first neighbor you should love, men, is the one that's nearest and dearest to your heart, the one you share the same bed with, the one that you have breakfast with in the morning or dinner with every day, the one that God has blessed you to have children with, the one you've shared your heart with. You, you must love her, and you must love her in a very particular way. You must love her the way Christ loved you. The way Christ loved you. You see, yes, you are the head of your wife. And God has made it that way. But Christ is your head. And we see this image of of the head as applied to the role of man with respect to his wife in verse 23. 
since Christ in relationship to the church is the model held out for the man to emulate. So we have this twofold pattern of leadership and source of provision. And that's how we interpret this, men. As, as the head, we are called to provide leadership in the marriage based on self-sacrificial love. And the example is Christ. He's not just the example. He's the one that enables us to do it. He's our source. Christ had our best interests in mind. Christ left heaven to come to earth. Christ became poor that we might become rich. Christ is the one who gave it up to benefit us because he had our best interest in mind. And that's, men, how we should love our wives. We're to provide for them the way Christ provided for us. We're to nourish them. We're to cherish them. In, in Matthew seven twelve, it gives us a wonderful picture of this. It's, it's, it's a restating of, of this great commandment. Matthew seven twelve says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is, for this is the law and the prophets. Matthew seven twelve. Men, this is how we should love our wives. We should give of ourselves. We should bless them. Christ loved you, and so you should love your wife. Let's look at the application questions for the men. So this is from that same article. So let me ask you a question, guys. How are you self-sacrificing, constructive, initiating, and constant in love towards your wife? How are you self-sacrificing, constructive, initiating, and constant in love towards your wife? Men, how will you as a husband learn to actively pursue the well-being of your wife rather than neglecting her, being preoccupied, acquiescing to her, or getting irritated? So let me just help you interpret this word preoccupied, second to the last line. Can I just interpret that word for you? That word actually means selfish. It's like when my wife comes to me when we had younger children in the middle of a dolphin game back when they were actually any good, and, and I, I would be watching the game, and, and she would say, Honey, you know, your son's hair is on fire, and he's just buried you know, a bat in the back of your daughter's head. And I'd say, Right after this play, baby. I got right, right after this play. So I was preoccupied, right? No, 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 I wasn't. I was selfish. I was selfish. Or getting irritated. Man, I know none of you ever, ever attempted with this, but every once in a while, once every couple of years... My wife may ask me a question and it might get me a little irritated. Very rarely. You know that look, right guys? She asks you the question, it's like, you know, like, why do you, can't you just trust me? <laughs> How are we getting on our vacation, honey? No, no. Where are we going on our vacation, honey? Just trust me, sweetheart. So these are ways, men. That God is saying to us, you, you love her as Christ loved the church. You, you, you lay your life down for her. Why? Well, here's what's at stake. Look at verse 21. In the same way husbands, excuse me, 28. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now what does that mean there? 
Is that talking about sort of a self-indulgent love? No, it, no, it isn't. What it's talking about here is that very great commandment that we just spoke of. Actually, what it's talking about, and, and turning your Bibles to this, is Leviticus. Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. This is what it says. Leviticus 19, 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So this is the great commandment, men. When it says to love your wife as you love your own body, what it's saying here is that you're to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the great commandment. This is what we're called to do. Why? Well, the third point. Because the church is at stake. Because the church is at stake. Look at verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So what's at stake is the church, and what tells me that is verse 32. This mystery is profound. The mystery that is being spoken of there is the mystery of Christ in union with his church, a mystery that was hidden in Genesis 2.24. If in your Bible, this uh, verse um, 31 may be highlighted where it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That verse is a direct quote of Genesis 2.24. So what's at stake here in marriage is the, that the mystery that we're talking about is that Christ and his church were in God's heart from the very beginning of time when he brought Adam and Eve together and they were, they were one. You understand what that means? They were physically one. But that picture is simply a picture of God sending His Son and spiritually being one with His bride, the church. So the church is at stake in our marriages. The typology of Christ and the church then speaks to and infiltrates into our marriages. The gospel is at stake. See, our hope is that we have been redeemed from the effects of the fall, from the curse. And that the Spirit of God in Christ has given us new life and we are filled with the Spirit. And we're being filled with the Spirit. And throughout this text, we see the hope of redemption played out. Christ is at the center. We're called to reverence Him. Ladies, by submitting to your husbands as to the Lord. Men, by loving your wives as Christ loved the church and gave His life for her. Salvation in Christ reaffirms this creation order. Redemption in Christ restores the harmony of the created order to include male leadership. See, remember that we're created in the image of God. And God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are equal in being and worth and value. And they're to be worshipped as the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But they have different roles, being equal. The Son submits to the Father, and the Spirit glorifies the Son and reveals us, Him to us. And so we have this great symphony that has been composed by God. And we've got notes to play. And here's the question. Will you play them? Will you play them?
Let's bow our heads in prayer. Worship team, if you can join me up up front. Lord, thank you for your goodness this morning to help us understand that we've been called to image you. And so I pray, Lord, that you would give faith right now to every married couple that is seated here thinking, I don't know if I can do this. Lord, give them faith. Lord, help them to see that you have redeemed them from the curse of the law. For the woman that is seated in that chair right now and just convicted, there are skid marks all across the living room and kitchen and backyard of where she's dug her heels in and said, you will not lead me and you will never lead me well. Lord, give her hope that you've come to redeem her from the curse of the law, from a miserable existence that does not bring glory to you, but brings strife and anger, like the Bible says, a constant dripping of a leaking roof. Give her hope right now, because Jesus, you were crucified on that cross to reverse that curse. And Lord, for the man who's sitting here, perhaps he's a divorced man, perhaps he's not even around his wife, perhaps there are men here who have abused women, maybe even physically. Oh God, I pray, first of all, you put the fear, your fear in them right now, that you see all, and you you will be the one who brings vengeance on that one. But how many men haven't intimidated verbally, failed to lay down their lives, and they're sitting here thinking, oh, Can I ever change? Oh, God, give them hope that they can. Lord, and for the singles that are sitting there, the young adults or the teenagers and thinking, I don't know if I want to get married. I've just not seen it work very well. Give them hope. May they not be led by fear, but by faith in the risen Christ. And may our marriages reflect the union between Christ and His church. In Jesus' name. Let me, let me share with you how this passage begins and how it ends. Look at verse 21 again. What does it say? Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now look at verse 33. What does it say? However, let each one of you Love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Do you know that the word for respect there? And please put the, uh, you can put the notes back up just for a second, please. The word for respect there, that Greek word could also be translated reverence or fear. It's not a fear like I'm afraid you're going to hurt me. It's a reverencing of her husband. This whole section here begins with reverencing Christ and it ends with wives being told to reverence their husbands. As a matter of fact, verse 33 Verse 33 is a practical summation of everything I've just shared. If you got lost in some of the cosmic, historical, redemptive stuff from the beginning to the end, you're scratching your head. Well, let me just boil it down for you. Let God boil it down for you. If you're a married man, you love your wife and you lay your life down for her. Verse 33, let each of you love his wife as himself. You fulfill the great commandment to love one another as you love yourself. You do that, men. And ladies, do you want me to boil it all down for you? Here it is. Here's the gospel. 
respect your husband. That, that is what this is about. And that is why we need God's help. And so what I'd like to ask the worship team to do is to, is to help us see God's grace. And I want to sing, uh, you are Lord of Lords, you are King of Kings, Mighty God, Lord of Everything, that one, okay? You are holy. And this song does a couple of things. This song declares the truth about who Jesus is, and it reminds one another that he's the one that called us to this. Therefore, he's going to bring it to pass. Let's stand and let's sing that song. You are holy.